The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. In today's podcast, Dr. Shannon Carson and Dr. Jesse Hall join me to discuss a new study describing the impact of transfers to long-term acute care hospitals, or LTACs, on markers of quality of ICU care. Dr. Carson and his colleagues published their findings in an article in the January 1, 2012 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine entitled, The Implications of Long-Term Acute Care Hospital Transfer Practices for Measures of In-Hospital Mortality and Length of Stay. Dr. Hall was the co-author of the accompanying editorial entitled, Measuring and Rewarding Quality in the ICU. The yardstick isn't as straight as we wish. Dr. Carson is Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Diseases and Critical Care Medicine and Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. And Dr. Hall is Professor of Medicine and Anesthesia as well as Critical Care and Section Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Chicago Medical Center. So now let's start the podcast with a question for Dr. Carson. Dr. Carson, can you describe the rationale for your study? Yes, so I chair a performance improvement team in our hospital for our critical care services, and over the years we've been given data from the University Health Consortium that provided mortality rates and mortality ratios for our ICU patients, uh, in particular mechanically ventilated patients. And a fellow, Billy Hall, and I had wondered how much transfer to LTACs might affect these mortality ratios, and it's something that we had discussed, but it became important to us when we noted that the National Quality Forum had endorsed public reporting of this type of measure for hospitals across the country. And so this larger interest uh, was generated when we felt that this number, which was interesting to us, could actually become public for all hospitals and then potentially a source of paper performance changes as well. So we elected to contact University Health Consortium, get access to data on variability of LTAC transfer rates across the UHC participants and to see if we could perform an analysis of how much LTAC transfer rates affected this, what could potentially be an important and public quality measure. Dr. Hall, Dr. Carson just mentioned the National Quality Forum. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with BNQF. I would ask if you could provide some background about the National Quality Forum and specifically about their recommendations in terms of measuring quality of ICU care. 
For sure. The NQF was created in 1999 by a coalition of public and private sector leaders in response to a recommendation of the Advisory Commission on Consumer Protection and Quality in the Healthcare Industry. But that advisory committee had been established by the Clinton administration to address issues of safety and quality in medicine. It probably would be useful to note that 1999 was also the date of the Institute of Medicine's seminal report entitled to Air is Human, Building a Safe Health System, and that report begins with the statement that between 44,000 and 98,000 Americans lose their life to medical error each year, and obviously implying that many non-lethal events occur with significant morbidity as well. That's just medical error, and then an entire other realm would be, uh, are we delivering the best care and avoiding anything that would be suboptimal care? The uh, NQF defines its mission as building consensus on national priorities and goals for performance improvement and working to achieve them, endorsing national consensus standards for measuring and publicly reporting on performance, and promoting the attainment of national goals through education and outreach programs. Now, in 2009, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services awarded a contract to NQF to help establish a portfolio of quality and efficiency measures that in turn would allow the federal government to see how and whether healthcare spending is achieving the best results for patients and taxpayers. It is through that contract and work that they identified quality measures in many areas, but in the realm of critical care unit, the measures that were determined or proposed to be used were ICU mortality and length of stay. What was the response by stakeholders such as the ATS to the National Quality Forum's uh, endorsement of public reporting of ICU length of stay and in-hospital mortality as ICU outcome measures? Well, a large number of groups, you know, responded to the proposal and inputted discussion into the limitations or benefits of such measures and metrics. The ATS in particular signaled through a number of spokespeople concerns about ICU mortality and length of stay as measures for the reasons that Shannon was alluding to earlier, which is that the way in which patients move through our complicated healthcare system with the intensive care unit being only one step along the path, could influence those endpoints enormously, uh, quite apart from the issue of uh, quality of care within the ICU. So, Dr. Carson, hospitals can decrease their length of stay and hospital mortality simply by transferring patients to an LTAC or long-term acute care hospital. So it's unclear how this actually affects overall patient outcome or cost and this variable is not accounted for with the ICU quality metrics we are proposing, endorsing as uh, as quality measures. Is this correct? That's correct. You know, it stands to reason that if you have a patient who's chronically critically ill, still receiving mechanical ventilation, say, and they're transferred to another acute hospital, which long-term acute care hospitals are, and the patient still is at relatively high risk of dying, and in fact, an important percentage of patients transferred to LTACs do die before discharge from the LTAC. So yes, that's a patient who is at high risk, who is counted as a survivor at the originating acute hospital, and 
if you have a relatively high percentage of these patients transferred to LTACs, then it stands to reason that one's standardized mortality ratio is going to be impacted by that. That was our hypothesis, and what we really wanted to do was to prove that and to quantify the amount that this quality measure is impacted in a existing quality benchmark system which the UHC is. Those data aren't publicly reported, but currently they're fed back to each hospital. So then let's get to the details of the paper. Dr. Carson, your group conducted a cross-sectional study analyzing data from the, the database you were alluding to. Could you describe some of the details of this database and tell us which patients and hospitals from the database you included in your analysis? Yes, so the University Health Consortium is a group of academic hospitals, which actually includes most academic hospitals, uh, nearly 90% in the United States. And so hospitals in the group that report data regularly to the UHC for quality and benchmarking purposes were included in our analysis. We excluded hospitals if they had less than 100 patients or if they had incomplete data for the two-year period that uh, we were assessing, 2008-2009. And we obtained the discharge data for all the participating hospitals, which included patients transferred to LTACs. We obtained the length of stay and mortality and cost data and predicted length of stay mortality and cost for each of the hospitals to perform our analysis. Now, we focused on patients that are reported as the ventilated patient product line, and these are patients who required greater than 96 hours of mechanical ventilation. The reason we focused on these patients is that they are a particularly uh, high-cost patient for hospitals who have also not the best long-term or even short-term mortality. So it's an impactful group of patients, patients therefore important to focus on from quality point of view, but also if any group of patients in their uh, reporting scheme are going to be impacted by this issue, LTAC transfer, it would be these patients. So then, Dr. Carson, the primary outcome measures for your study were hospital mortality index and length of stay index for each hospital. Some of our listeners may not be familiar with these indices. Can you describe them for us? Yes. So the mortality index is basically a standardized mortality ratio where in ideally large databases, a risk adjustment score or a predictive model for outcome is generated based upon available data. And in the case for the UHC model, they include demographics, diagnoses uh, and procedure codes reflecting comorbidities and then um, some data regarding origin of admission. And so using these large data, they can create expected mortality, expected length of stay, and expected costs. And so for each given hospital, their reported or observed mortality is reviewed and uh, then reported in a ratio of observed and expected mortality or observed and expected length of stay. So what's important to note about the UHC's model, which is actually a very good model, they exclude patients for their predicted mortality or predicted length of stay 
who had been transferred to another acute care hospital. However, when they apply the model on benchmarking data, so a given hospital's mortality index, they do not exclude patients who are transferred to other acute care hospitals, including LTACs. So on one hand, they recognize that it's an issue, patients being transferred out before the end of their acute care stay, and so they recognize it, and so it's not included in their predictive model, yet those patients are included for the quality reporting. Dr. Carson, would follow up, why do you think there is that discrepancy in terms of not including in the predictive model, but in their reporting data? When you're putting together a predictive model, it takes quite a lot of thought about what type of data should go into it. And so if your outcome is hospital mortality and the patient was transferred out of the hospital before completing their acute stay, you don't know their outcome. And if you don't know their outcome, how can you include them in the model? Whereas on the reporting side, I think it just may not have occurred to people that it's as big of an issue. And so, again, that's what prompted us to take a closer look and see if it, in fact, can be an important issue. So then, Dr. Carson, what were the findings of the study? Well, the two interesting findings in our minds, one is that the transfer rates across participating hospitals is quite variable, anywhere from zero for a number of hospitals to 50%. So up to 50% of patients ventilated 96 hours or more and a few hospitals are transferred to LTACs. So that's quite a lot of variability across participating institutions. So there inherently you can imagine that it's going to have some impact on these outcomes. So when we looked at it quantitatively, we discovered that the transfer rate to LTACs accounted for 14% of the variation in mortality index across participating hospitals and accounted for 37% of variation in the length of stay index across participating hospitals. Dr. Hall, I'd ask you for your thoughts on the study findings. I think the uh, study was a creative and uh, imaginative way to get at what had been a theoretical concern raised uh, in those earlier discussions with the NQF. Uh, one could have easily imagined how LTAC transfer rates could impact these numbers that were going to be used for the purpose of assessing quality, but one wouldn't be able to come up with much of a weighting of that process. At least, as Shannon said, an important subset of patients with high resource allocation in the ICU, that is longer-term mechanically ventilated patients, we now have our arms around just how much impact this kind of uh, transfer variability might have. Dr. Carson, were you able to quantify specifically how much an individual hospital increasing their LTAC transfer rate would impact that hospital's mortality and length of stay indices? Yes, so if a hospital was at the 25th percentile of transfer rate, meaning only 2% of patients were transferred to LTACs, and they increased their transfer rate to 75th percentile, therefore to a 26% transfer rate, their mortality index would go from 0.97, which is about the average, down to 0.83, which would move them towards a range of what could be perceived a higher performer. 
when in fact it's merely a factor of the transfer practice. Dr. Carson, you mentioned a moment ago what a wide range of transfer rates to long-term acute care hospitals there is. I noticed in your study looked at regional variation. Could you tell us what the regional variations were in LTAC transfer rates and if you could uh, speculate on, on why you think they occurred? There is regional variation. So LTAC transfer rates for this type of patient is 5 to 9% in the West or Mid-Atlantic states and goes as high as an average of 20 to 25% in the Midwest and Mid-Continent states. And that is mostly a factor of LTAC availability. The LTAC industry is largely a for-profit industry that has variable levels of penetration across the country. And so, understandably, there's higher transfer rates in areas where there's a higher penetration of LTAC hospitals. And that tends to be more urban areas than rural areas in the um, places where the hospitals are located. But it's more than just availability of LTACs. There is some variability within regions that we've always wondered about and I think is important. And Jeremy Kahn will be publishing a paper shortly in Medical Care Research Review that drills down into the question of variability within regions and transfer rates. Dr. Hall, would you care to speculate on other factors that may drive uh, within-region variability of long-term acute care transfer rates? Well, I mean, I think we don't have much of a rational, planned healthcare system across the United States, and accordingly, local market forces, business practice, investment strategy, payment systems, all are drivers for initiating and maintaining these institutions and facilities and they are unless they were to in fact be rationalized and uh, distributed in a more planned way i imagine we would continue with major regional differences in the way a great deal of medicine is conducted studies that have looked at the distribution of federal payments for healthcare find just enormous differences in distribution and use of services as best we can tell for the same conditions. Dr. Hall, I'd ask you about Dr. Carson's study. What were some of the limitations of the study? Well, Shannon's study focused, as he mentioned, only on nonprofit hospitals who are part of this database and for patients mechanically ventilated for greater than 96 hours. Of course, the mandate and desire from NQF was for measures that would globally assess uh, quality of care in intensive care units. So this is a subset of patients and a subset of hospitals that are being reported here, necessarily so, because that was the nature of the database that he used. And in addition, the data analysis that was used used hospital length of stay and mortality instead of specifically ICU mortality and length of stay. But even with both of these limitations, I think one might reasonably suppose that, if anything, some of the weight to variability in LTAC uh, transfer rates in terms of observed mortality would have been even more striking. I don't believe that a larger universe of patients or hospitals would have changed his results significantly in the direction of uh, non-significance. 
And then, Dr. Carson, I'd follow up on that. Why did your group use hospital length of stay rather than ICU length of stay in your analysis? Because that is what is reported by the UHC. Again, we were starting with current benchmark data that is being provided to hospitals right now and has been for at least 10 years that I remember. So we wanted to focus on data that we're already receiving and using rather than just theoretical models. So, and the hospital data is what they report. But honestly, I think hospital mortality and hospital length of stay are more relevant outcomes for a hospital or for an even ICU director. What good is a lot of great quality improvement interventions if they're not going to help a patient get home? And, you know, length of stay in the hospital is really a more important variable from a resource point of view than length of stay in the ICU. That's hard for us to accept as ICU directors, but it's the case. So, honestly, I think hospital mortality and length of stay are more relevant. So, Dr. Hall, in your opinion, should this data prompt the National Quality Forum to revisit their recommended criteria for measuring quality of care in the ICU? I would uh, like to think that carefully collected data, carefully analyzed, would make us go back to what had previously been basically consensus opinion and refine it in accord with findings. So yes, if uh, this kind of important research is done but not acted on, I view that as a lost opportunity. And I would hope as well that there would be uh, perhaps not only a revisiting of the specific guidelines, but a revisiting of the entire process of how to collect information and refine, based on new understandings, your measurement of quality, because I think it is important to do so, but it is extremely difficult to do so, and we are in the infancy of trying to do it correctly, and I think we have to understand that that process needs to be ongoing, iterative, and self-informing. Clearly, there's a theme here that it's important for us to measure quality, but measurement of quality is quite challenging. And Dr. Carson, in the manuscript, your group alluded to the problems with many of the standard benchmarks of care we use, such as mortality. So do markers such as observed or standardized mortality and ICU length of stay that are typically used in studies, do they accurately reflect quality of care? I think only in extreme outliers, and even then, only if it's relating to something that is in fact reversible and not inherent to a hospital's location or population base or something else. The problem with mortality as a quality indicator is that the very large majority of deaths in hospital are not preventable. So for that reason, really useful and effective quality improvement interventions often don't impact mortality in a measurable way. And that's also a factor of there's so much noise in the measurement for risk adjustment. And this is just one example of things that can affect the risk adjustment models. Risk adjustment models can explain, you know, somewhere from 30 to 40 percent of mortality risk, but you have a whole lot more explanation that's not measurable. So personally, I am in, in favor of clinical process measures 
as targets for quality improvement and as measurements for quality improvement. If those process measures are based on good, strong efficacy data or good, strong evidence, then we take it on faith that it's going to improve patient outcome and we implement those interventions and see if we're implementing it appropriately. I think that's a better use of our quality resources. The problem is that measuring processes is not easy either. Mortality is a black and white outcome. It's available in administrative databases. You can do some adjustment with administrative databases, whereas measuring how well we adhere to a daily interruption of continuous sedation, that's harder to measure in a systematic way. But I think those types of measures, normal tidal volume and ARDS, or practices and central line placement are more effective quality interventions and measures, even though they're imperfect also. Dr. Hall, I'd ask you for your thoughts of measuring process rather than trying to achieve black and white markers such as mortality that uh, may be limited as well. Well, I think uh, Shannon is exactly correct that process measures are more uh, reasonable, although I would say we don't know how to measure them and their outcomes properly yet, and they are less tractable than mortality is for sure. So it's understandable why people would seize on mortality as an early uh, marker. In addition to the points that Shannon made about high signal-to-noise problems with mortality in the ICU, where mortality is high and a bit of extra mortality related to quality will be hard to discern. There is also the issue that I think is somewhat specific to critical care, but perhaps shared in other areas such as oncology, which is that end-of-life care is extraordinarily important and probably variable in terms of how it is done. So imagine that you had a highly effective, high-quality end-of-life process and clinicians who were able to bond with families to help them through that extraordinarily difficult point early in the course of their critical illness. You might have the best imaginable care for that individual group of patients while you would have an earlier mortality in the intensive care unit, a paradox of delivering better care. So then, Dr. Hall, at this point, is it reasonable to say that it is unclear which metrics accurately measure quality of ICU care? I think it is safe to say it is unclear which metrics accurately measure quality of care in the ICU from an intellectual point of view. But, of course, it is distressing from a policy and public opinion point of view that we are currently in a dilemma with highly sophisticated medical care and a bit stymied in terms of how to measure its quality and impact. So then I'd ask both of you to comment. First, Dr. Hall, so do you think it is too late because of that uh, public pressure to wait for higher quality evidence evaluating the currently uh, utilized metrics before we get into public reporting? Well, I think it uh, is an issue that needs to be addressed and can't be, I suppose, put in the context of ideal metrics to be identified and refined and weighted upon because I think that is a long-term process 
and it would be putting on the shelf an important issue. I suppose it is acceptable to start with the best imperfect measures we have, but at least acknowledge and measure all of their imperfections and be quick to revisit them as needed over time. So, Dr. Carson, I'd ask your thoughts. There's clearly an appetite for these benchmarks that measure quality of care, and I think we can agree that this study adds to the body of evidence that our benchmarks are flawed. So, at least in the short term, how do we go forward and reconcile this problem? Well, I agree with Jesse that if there's going to be insistence on using them, at least be very clear with the limitations and try and eliminate some of the limitations if possible. And I think in this particular case, it is possible. I still would favor waiting on public reporting of benchmarking data. I mean, I think benchmarking data can be useful internally. You know, we look at these numbers and we respond to them. But I don't think I appreciate the value of public reporting of these measures when it's not real clear what they mean, it's not real clear what can be done to really change them, and they would then just serve to confuse the public. And then certainly I'm not sure that hospitals should be penalized based upon measures that are not completely valid and reflective of their care, because then you're going to lead the hospitals to alter their policies and practices which could potentially affect quality in a negative way. You know, would hospitals be less willing to accept high-risk patients from transfer from other hospitals who need their help if it's going to impact their publicly reported quality measure and could impact their payments? So. I just think that uh, slowing the train down a little bit and being careful about the measures, particularly public reporting of the measures, is warranted. Dr. Hall, do you agree that it may be reasonable to benchmark based on what we have at this point, but public reporting may lead to these unintended consequences that Dr. Carson mentioned? Uh, I do, and there has been some experience with this occurring in England and a debate about publicly reported data and uh, conclusions drawn therefrom concerning hospital performance. So we might learn from our colleagues across the Atlantic a bit and see how we might use data but in a gentler way considering that it is a series of imperfect markers we are applying and when that's so, top-down use of them needs to be done very cautiously. So, Dr. Carson, I would ask you then, if we do end up using the National Quality Forum criteria for measuring ICU quality, and obviously these could potentially be linked to financial incentives for hospitals, at this point, based on your study, should we exclude data from patients transferred to long-term acute care facilities? I think that's reasonable, particularly if a large number of the patients in a given data set are mechanically ventilated patients. For hospitals that have high transfer rates to LTAC hospitals, that could lessen the available pool of patients for benchmarking. However, I think it's likely that the patients, you know, the 70% of patients or so that are left are still very reflective of whatever these measures can actually represent. 
So I think that would be reasonable and certainly more fair to hospitals out west who more in other regions that where this isn't even an option. And Dr. Hall, should we exclude data from patients transferred to long-term acute care facilities? Since uh, we don't, I believe, even with Shannon's nice study, have uh, clear-cut ways to uh, weight that factor appropriately to the databases, I would agree that excluding patients is a reasonable approach. Dr. Hall, do you have any final thoughts? To the critical care practicing physicians, I would say stay tuned, be skeptical, and as you develop local means and skills in assessing processes of care, share them throughout the community. We will leave the discussion there. Thank you both for joining me today. This study by Dr. Carson and colleagues adds to a body of literature suggesting that current measures of quality of ICU care are flawed. It seems clear that research needs to be directed not only at identifying interventions that improve the quality of ICU care, but also refining and improving the measures of quality. The study done by Dr. Carson, as well as Dr. Hall's accompanying editorial, is published in the January 1, 2012 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. A related official ATS statement on pay for performance in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine can be found on the ATS website, thoracic.org statements. You can find the complete archive of the ATS article discussion podcast at thoracic.org. And finally, you can get a free subscription to ATS podcasts by searching iTunes for American Thoracic Society article discussions. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Thoracic Society.